0: Good morning again, everyone. So glad you guys are here. Thanks for being here today. One of the blessings of reading the Bible is that we get to learn what God is truly like. And the more that we learn what God is like, the more we learn how complex God is. God is amazingly complex in his goodness. He's amazingly complex in his goodness. For example, God loves people, and he is intimately involved in the details of our lives. And Jesus says that he actually changes our identities from enemies of God to friends of God when we trust in Jesus. And at the the very same time that God is very present and personal in our lives... God also transcends all of the known and unknown universe. And he controls everything that happens in his universe. Here's another way that God is amazingly complex in his goodness. God is beautiful. And he is holy. And he's set apart from everything that he has made. He is... I was having this conversation with this little girl. You want to, hey, you want to brush up on your theology? Teach eight-year-olds, okay? Um, Or middle school. And this sweet little girl was asking me, well, where did God come from? Did he just fall out of the sky? I said, that's a great question. I said, well, God is the only thing that exists that has always been. And, And she just... Went on and ate her food, and I, I don't know if it sunk in, but I "This is God is totally. This is where God is totally separate from His creation, and in, in one of that's one way. Um, and God is is glorious. He is totally free. He's he's peaceful within Himself. He's patient. He says, he is merciful and gracious." And at the same time that God has all these things, God says that he hates wickedness. And he says that he pours out his wrath on wickedness and on those who remain in wickedness. And he says that he will avenge all the wrongdoings in this world because he is perfectly just. God is not a, jo- a judge who's gonna get the judgment wrong. He is the good king of the universe and he's worthy of our lives he's worthy of our worship and he says that he will destroy every person and power and government that sets itself against him if you set yourself against the lord jesus christ you will lose psalm 2 is a classic passage of scripture that communicates this reality i want to read this aloud if you have your bible you can open real quick with me Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, last Sunday, we read about how in the first century A.D., King Herod Agrippa raged against the first Christians. Acts 12, 1 to 3, remember this. It said, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. So King Herod did exactly what Psalm 2 tells rulers and kings not to do. Herod set himself against God and against God's people. And so the church started to pray fervently for Peter. And as we saw last week, God answered their prayers by sending an angel from heaven to free Peter from jail in the middle of the night. And then, when the morning came and the 16 Roman soldiers who were guarding Peter couldn't find him and they had no answer for what had happened, Herod killed all of those soldiers. And then Herod left town to go to his palace on the coastal town of Caesarea. And Herod was he, was, he was likely embarrassed, and he was very angry when Peter escaped, because, listen, Herod was robbed of glory when Peter escaped. Herod found his value and his glory in the applauses and the approval of the people he ruled over. He loved to be worshiped by people because it made him feel like a god, but now, Herod couldn't give the people what they wanted, which was Peter's dead body. And as a result, Herod would not be hearing the crowds praise his name anytime soon. Until he could find Peter, Herod would have to think up other ways to receive praise and glory from the crowds. And this morning, we're going to read how he did that. So turn with me, if you haven't already, to Acts chapter 12, verse 20. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Lord, we thank you that you've given us today, put breath in our lungs, the ability to to travel here to the church, the ability to think and hear you. And we just declare, God, in this place that you, God, are glorious. And we wanna ascribe glory to your name today, Jesus. And and as we open your word now and we read it, we just ask Holy Spirit that you would move in power in this room and in our hearts and in our minds. Please turn our affections to you. Please quiet down the doubts in our flesh. Quiet down the temptations of this world. Quiet down the lies of Satan. We wanna hear you now, God. And we wanna bring you the glory that you deserve, and we need your help to do that. So we pray all of this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, Jesus, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. So let's start by looking at just one verse, Acts 12, verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, They asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. Okay, so let's do a little background info here. Herod was staying at his royal palace in Caesarea, and for some reason he became angry with his neighbors to the north. In Tyre and Sidon, they were part of a region called Phoenicia. And for many centuries, Phoenicia and Israel had worked out certain trading agreements, just like our country does with other countries. And the Phoenicians happened to be very dependent upon Israel for grain. And so when Herod got mad at the Phoenicians, he stopped sending grain to the Phoenicians. And they very quickly started to run out of food. So some of the Phoenicians, uh, the Phoenician leaders, they knew a man high up in Herod's administration. Cool name. His name was Blastus. Blastus. Um, And they begged Blastus to help them make peace with Herod so that their cities wouldn't go hungry. And while these Phoenician leaders were in Caesarea doing this this talk uh, with, with Herod's officials, Herod was throwing a huge celebration in honor of somebody. And verse 21 says, On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. Now, in addition to the New Testament, some of the most historically reliable writings from the first century that we have were written by a Jewish historian named Josephus. And Josephus also wrote about the special anniversary party that Herod was throwing at his palace. And Josephus describes this in more detail. He describes Herod's royal robes. In a lot more detail, Josephus writes that Herod put on a garment, a breathtaking garment made entirely of silver. And the silver threads were apparently intricately woven in a beautiful pattern. And on that morning when Herod entered the, the ballroom or the theater where all the people were at and he was wearing the silver robe, the sun at that moment shone right onto his robe and immediately filled the whole room with light. And he probably, he probably looked like a walking disco ball, is my guess, okay? Um, but the people had never seen anything like this, okay? Now, Herod appeared, it says, so bright that the people were actually shocked. It took their breath away. And they were, they were kind of like this mass... Herd OF DEER CAUGHT IN THE HEADLIGHTS, AND THEY COULD NOT TAKE THEIR EYES OFF OF HEROD. AND THEN THEY RESPONDED TO THIS. THEY, they uh, SPONTANEOUSLY STARTED TO WORSHIP HEROD. And, AND THEY WERE SHOUTING, HE'S A GOD. AND THEY SAID, HEROD, BE MERCIFUL TO US. ACTS 12, SAYS, AND THE PEOPLE WERE SHOUTING, THE VOICE OF A GOD AND NOT OF A MAN. And remember what we read earlier in verses one to three, that Herod loved to please people. He loved to be worshiped by people. And this silver robe produced the result that he'd been hoping for. Herod was thrilled to be worshiped again. He probably believed that he deserved to be worshiped. And and he did not tell the people to stop worshiping him. He he embraced it. He absorbed it. And it was at that moment when the Lord's patience ran, ran out with Herod the Lord had patiently endured Herod's arrogance and his self-worship and his murderous actions toward the church but Herod never saw his behavior as evil he never repented and turned to the Lord in the time that God had given him to do that instead Herod stole worship from God he robbed God of the glory of that only God deserves. So verse 23 says, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. So right at that moment when Herod was absorbing all of that public worship and glory that he depended on and he he lived to receive, God publicly humbled him. And he sent an angel to strike Herod down, and the reason's very clear here, because he did not give God the glory. And within a short time, Herod was eaten by worms, probably from the inside out, and he died. And so Herod, who believed he was the sovereign one, who lived for the cheers of his followers, who set himself up against God and against God's people, was slain in an instant by the truly sovereign God. The God who will avenge himself and his people and who will not allow his glory to be given to another. And then immediately after this awesome, frightening verse, God's word says this in verse 24. But... THE WORD OF GOD INCREASED AND MULTIPLIED. SEE, GOD BROKE HEROD. HE ENDED HEROD ON EARTH. BUT GOD INCREASED AND MULTIPLIED HIS WORD. GOD'S WORD, THE GOSPEL OF JESUS CHRIST, THIS IS GOD'S POWER TO SAVE PEOPLE. AND GOD HAS ORDAINED HIS WORD, HIS GOSPEL, TO BE THE MESSAGE THAT CALLS HIS PEOPLE TO HIMSELF, in order to rescue them from destruction and to make them in right relationship with himself. And God's gospel will never be destroyed. God's word, God's finished work, God himself will not and cannot ever be destroyed. But everyone who sets himself or herself in opposition to God and God's people will be destroyed by God sooner or later. This is the promise of God in Scripture. Well, let's talk about a couple of applications from these verses. First, this is obvious, but this, we need to dig into this. The Lord will triumph over all his enemies. The Lord will triumph over all his enemies. Throughout several thousand years, several millennia, many, many political leaders and governments and nations have set themselves against God and against his people. And all of them lost. Even when it looked like they were gonna win, they lost in the end. Satan rebelled against God and Satan lost. Adam and Eve disobeyed God and they lost. Sodom and Gomorrah rebelled against God and they lost. Pharaoh set himself against God and God's people and Pharaoh lost. Jericho lost. Ai lost. The Canaanites lost. The Amorites lost. The Hittites lost. The Israelites, God's own people, set themselves against God. They lost. The Midianites lost, the Philistines lost, the Ammonites lost, the Amalekites lost, the prophets of Baal lost, Nebuchadnezzar lost, and on and on and on. God's enemies on earth and in heaven might win some battles on earth. They might even hurt and kill God's people, but God's enemies will not win the war. God has already declared the end from the beginning. Just read God's word to find out how this world's going to end. Jesus will return to earth. Jesus will slay Satan and his demons and all people who align themselves with Satan and his demons and reject God. And Jesus will rescue and reward everyone who trusts in him and has aligned themselves with the Lord. So who are you aligned with? Jesus or Satan? Satan? Now, our postmodern world hates stuff like that. What? That's too black and white. It's not Jesus or Satan. Just because I'm, I'm tr- not trusting in Jesus doesn't mean I'm supportive of Satan or evil. Have you read Jesus' words? In Matthew 12 30, he says, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather, with me scatters what this means is there is no safe neutral ground in this battle for eternal glory there are two sides there is no demilitarized zone if you're not trusting in jesus then you are in grave danger you've already been lost to sin and death and destruction like all of humanity was but at this very moment in this room you sit before god I'm not God, God's up there, okay? But you are hearing God through his word say that you must turn to him and you must trust in him to be saved. And if you do not accept that, you're rejecting his offer of salvation and his offer of peace. And Jesus does this for you because he loves you. He wants good for you. And he's proven this. He's proven the greatness of his love by coming to earth, by dying for sin, and by rising in victory over death for us. <laughs> but know this Satan does not love you. And he deceives humanity. He deceives you by making you think that he does want good for you. But in truth, Satan hates you. He wants, that's what he wants you to do. He, He wants to use you to dishonor the name of God on earth and in heaven. Just as God wants to multiply his word and multiply his glory on earth, so also Satan wants to multiply doubt and multiply dishonor to the Lord's name. So who are you aligned with? Turn to the Lord, Jesus says, if you want victory because you will lose if you're not on God's side and you will eternally regret it. You will experience the same fate as Herod except Jesus says that the worms that destroy you will never die. In Mark 9, 48, Jesus described hell as this terrible, eternal dwelling place of the wicked, quote, where their worm does not die, And the fire is not quenched. So do not take for granted this opportunity you have now to turn to Jesus, to trust in his death and resurrection, to turn away from the world and to turn to Jesus and trust in him to save you from all of this, from sin and Satan and hell and death. And the Bible says if you confess with your mouth that that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe, if you believe in your heart that God raised you from the dead, you will be saved God is a victorious God. He triumphs over evil. He triumphs over his enemies. And his word, his gospel, the message of his awesome, victorious death and resurrection to save sinners, get this. It's going to be proclaimed throughout the universe forever. Okay? Christians, the gospel is your victory song. That's great news. The Lord reigns. Jesus reigns. And Jesus will triumph over all evil. The Lord will right all wrongs. The Lord will restore his broken creation. And if you've trusted in Jesus, get this. He says, his victories are your victories. We talk about substitutionary atonement, what Jesus did for us on the cross. He didn't only absorb, uh, become our sin and absorb our wrath and uh, God's wrath toward us. He also united us to himself. That means Jesus' victory over sin is your victory over sin. Jesus' victory over death is your victory over death. Jesus' victory over Satan is your victory over Satan. Jesus' victory over evildoers is your victory over evildoers. Jesus' victory over hell is your victory over hell because of God's grace alone, So as Christians, let's pray together that this last verse here would happen among us, that that God would continue to increase and multiply this great news through us. May May the world around us, may our neighbors, this community, see God's love in us and hear about the eternal life that God offers to us in Jesus Christ. We want that multiplied. The second application point comes in the form of a question. And this is where we're gonna spend some time digging into this question, series of questions really. Do you see Herod in yourself at all? Do you live for the approval of people? Do you want people to worship you on some level? Are there areas in your life where you are robbing God of the glory that he deserves? Our first parents, Adam and Eve, were not content with their their level of glory. They wanted for themselves the, the glory that was due to God alone. They wanted to know everything that God knows. They wanted to be at God's level. And as their offspring, all of us struggle with that same sinful desire to some extent for self-glory and for self-promotion. Look at Herod in this passage. Herod's life, um, in it we see three areas in which he was looking for self-glory and self-promotion. First, Herod looked to his possessions. Herod wanted to be accepted and applauded and worshiped because of this fancy silver robe that he wore. The second, Herod looked to his position. Herod wanted people to applaud him and worship him because he was a king. He wanted them to think he was a god. And third, Herod looked to his prestige for self glory. Herod wanted to please people, he wanted the world to look at him in good repute. And he was even willing to kill Christians in order to be seen as prestigious. And you know, when, when I look at this passage and when we look at it together, we find we're not all that different from Herod in many ways. So I want us to take some time and examine our lives to see how we look to our possessions and our positions and our prestige for worldly glory. First, we, we can look to our possessions for Glory. We, we can be tempted to buy lots of nice clothes and nice cars and nice houses in order to find our value and our glory in those nice things. As if somehow the, the square feet of my house or the height of my truck or the brand name on my shoes makes me glorious. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with enjoying God's creation rightly but we must enjoy our possessions with the right perspective and motivations. Buying more toys, more tools, more treasures, so that I can mainly have a decadent life while others around me lack is not Christ-like, if that's our motivation. And, And if we buy certain types of clothing or electronics or computers or other possessions in order to be accepted by other people, It might really show us that it's more important to us to have people tell us we're valuable than to have God tell us we're valuable. Looking to glorify ourselves through our possessions is not something that ends in childhood or the teenage years. I remember when Cindy and I started to have kids and we needed to get a bigger vehicle for our family. And we had a number of people tell us, do not buy a minivan. That is so uncool you do not want to be the minivan mom or dad we got a minivan (laughs) and and women this world tells you that you have to have this kind of equipment in your kitchen if you're really a good cook and you have to have these kind of yoga pants and if you really want to fit in that you need these kind of shoes you need to use this kind of makeup and you need to use that kind of smartphone and men you need to have this brand of tools and you need to own this much land, and you should try to buy this kind of boat, truck, gun, and television if you wanna be accepted by others. Now listen carefully again. I'm not saying possessions are inherently evil. I'm simply asking and examining this. What are we wanting our possessions to do for us? Are we looking, them to, looking to them to satisfy? our greatest desires, and our broken hearts, and the emptiness we feel? Are we we hoping that if we own these possessions, then they will make us more valuable? What drives us? What drives us to buy more stuff? As followers of Jesus, do we wanna buy and use and share our possessions in a way that brings maximum glory to God and not to us? really think about this this is a good question just to chew on how can you view your possessions and use your possessions in a way that says that your hopes and dreams your personal value and your self glory are not in those possessions but in Jesus Christ it's very good to think about this holiday season I've also talked to self-proclaimed Christians who, who even refuse to give money to the ministry of God's church because they'll argue, this is my money. I've heard it. I worked hard for this. God gave me this job. He wants me to have this and enjoy it, and I'm not going to waste my money by giving it away. Well, God already spoke to this thousands of years ago, which I think, I'm so thankful. I found this verse. Well, that's another story, but... It was given to me last night, <laughs> Deuteronomy eight seventeen to 18. God said this, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. So it forces you and me to ask, do we believe that nothing we own is truly ours? Think about that. You didn't create anything you have. You didn't buy it from God, and you can't take it with you when you die. God created, think about God created everything. Everything from which we take things and make things, God created it all. As far as I know, God never put up any of His creation for sale. Yeah, you get paid at your job, and yeah, you participate in a transaction with your employer or your customers. You exchange your labor, which is something God created, for money, which is something God has given you. And your, your ability to work, though, is a gift of God to you. It's a temporary stewardship that you have. And, and the money... Uh, that your boss or customers give to you is a gift from God to you. That's what God is saying. Your money is a temporary stewardship of God's creation in your hands. The question is, who gets the glory for your labor and for your money? Is it obvious through our labor and through the way we spend God's money that God is where we find our glory and it's not in our labor, and it's not in our money. When we, f- we fail to ascribe glory to God with our words and our songs and our work and our money and our possessions, we do exactly what Herod did in this passage. We rob God of the glory due to him alone. Second, We can look to our positions for self-glory, right? Do you know somebody whose identity and value is wrapped up in their position at work? No pointing fingers. Many of us struggle with this, right? I mean, if you think about that, what do we ask kids when they're little? What are you gonna be when you grow up? As if that's really the most important thing. I still ask my kids that question, what am I gonna be when I grow up, right? What do you think I'm gonna be? What do you... It's not the most important part of you, what you do for work. But we can be tempted to think it is. I'm a, I'm a policeman. I'm a fireman. I work for Boeing. I'm, I'm a teacher. I'm a construction worker. I'm a pastor. I'm a mom. I'm a grandparent. And that's what makes me valuable, and I'd be totally lost without that. What about positions that that you hold in the church or in other organizations? Now, I'm president of this club or that club. I'm on this council. I'm affiliated with this group of people. I'm part of this association. And that's, I find great personal value in that. Think about this. What drives you to serve in those positions and to associate yourself with those people? Is it purely to serve? Or do you do it because maybe you're afraid to tell people no, and you really want them to approve of you so you feel like you have to do it? Or do you like telling other people what positions you hold because it makes you feel important? Hear me right. As Christians, we need to serve and lead and work and take positions but know that those things can never fulfill you. People's approval, people's admiration of you might feel good, but it is not what you need most. And people's opinions are very fickle. What you need most to know is that your position in Christ is what makes you valuable. If you're in Jesus, then you are, think about who you are. You're beloved by the Lord, you're purchased by the Lord, you're adopted by the Lord, you're clothed by the Lord in his own righteousness. That's way better than any position you can get on earth. Okay? And Jesus tells us to lead and serve and work, but not so that we look to these positions to give us glory, that's what Herod did. He wanted his position as king to bring him glory. Whatever positions God allows you to hold, those positions are again a stewardship that God has given you. Praise God for it. But he wants us to use our positions not to be served, but to serve others. Not to be glorified, but to give glory to God. And third, we can look to our prestige for self-glory. Prestige refers to your accomplishments, your reputation, your fame. And in, in right now where we're at as a society, one realm in which we are, including me, susceptible to look for glory from others is in social media. There's a different kind of transaction that happens in social media. We share ourselves with the world and we're looking for feedback. We might want pity from others we might want a pat on the back we might simply want a few more likes because there's no doubt about it when somebody likes something you post it feels good and that feeling could be addicting and it's not inherently evil to share ourselves with the world online but what do you want it to do for you that's the question what is driving us to present ourselves to the world in this way you ever ask yourself, why do I do this? What, what are we looking to get out of it? Do we need other people to tell us we're okay? Do, do we need someone to tell us we're normal? Do, do we need someone to tell us that our opinion is right? You're right. Or that you're valuable. Or that you're admirable. That, that you are worthy of worship. See, we have to be careful. We must examine the motivations of our hearts when we use social media. And let's just say you don't use social media. Well, can't you just as easily get caught up in your own physical appearance? Or your own personal accomplishments? Haven't you achieved things that you look to 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 remind you that you're valuable? and, And hear me right, it's not wrong to be thankful and even proud in one sense of the things that God has empowered you to achieve what you really need to know is that you are valuable regardless of whether you have that diploma on your wall or your name on the front of your business or that ranking on your uniform or that grade that you wanted in class. You're valuable without it. Further, we're, we're all gonna make mistakes in our lives and and we cannot let our reputations or what we perceive as our reputations be what defines us and thankfully in Jesus one of the main requirements is to say I'm messed up I'm a sinner saved by the grace of God I do not like my sin but I certainly don't pretend to be perfect I make mistakes and I need God and I need his word and I need my brothers and sisters in Christ to help me as I follow Jesus. Earthly prestige is a very fickle thing. The achievement which we Christians should glory in most is not something we have achieved but that someone else achieved for us. Jesus achieved salvation and eternal life for us on the cross. Jesus achieved right standing with God for us in his resurrection. And even if all of the world looks down on us, we know that God loves us and he has already achieved for us everything that really matters and everything that we'll ever need. So we can be tempted to find our glory and our value in many things our possessions, our positions, our prestige and we need to ask the Holy Spirit to help us examine ourselves and our motives and our patterns of behavior to help us think rightly about ourselves help me think rightly about God help me to think rightly about others and instead of asking how can I use my possessions and my positions and my prestige to get people to like me and to to get people to give me glory, we want to, by the grace of God, ask, how can I use what God's given me in my possessions and positions of prestige to make God look glorious? How can I live in a way that says that Jesus is my greatest possession, and that my position in Him is what makes me righteous, and that the prestige of Jesus' name is way more important than the prestige of my name? When we look at Herod in today's passage, dressed in that shiny silver robe, dying to be worshiped valued by people, and then struck down by God, we should see some of ourselves if we're honest. But unlike Herod, you and I can have a different fate than Herod did if we repent and trust in Jesus. Because Jesus put on our robe of sin, but he was ridiculed, and mocked by onlookers, and then he was struck down by God on our behalf. That's what you and I deserve. We deserve to have happened to us what happened to Herod. But Jesus offered himself as our substitute so that we don't have to wear the robe of sin forever, and so that we don't have to suffer God's wrath. Instead, Jesus put our robe of sin to death for us, in his death, and he put onto us the robe of his righteousness. Not a superficial righteousness made of silver, made by the hands of men. <clears throat> now Jesus clothes his people with the righteousness of the holiness of God. <clears throat> Instead of, instead of striking us down, Jesus lifts us up with him in his resurrection. And when we die on earth, he will lift us up to go to him in heaven. And when Jesus returns to earth, he will lift our bodies up from the ground and make them glorious like his own body. So what, what can we do for such an awesome savior as Jesus? Trust in him, obey him, rest in the gospel, enjoy friendship with him, enjoy his word and his promises, depend on him, bring him glory, and exalt his name. In the words of Psalm 2, kiss the son and take refuge in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this word, uh, your word, God, which is our victory song for all eternity. You've made it our victory song, God, by being our substitute for us in the cross and in your resurrection. I pray, God, for my friends and acquaintances who, for whatever reason, are waiting, coming up with reasons not to trust in you. And I pray, Holy Spirit, you would break them, break into their lives, and show them their need for you and their accountability to you as their maker. And God, do this for their joy. (laughs) And do this for our joy. Continue, God, to breathe new life and grace and power into us each day as we look to you And help us, God, not to look at the empty promises that the world throws our way or that Satan throws our way. We could have everything in this world and still on our dying bed, we'd be saying, I need more. But God, you meet us where we're at in Jesus Christ and you fill us with everything we need now and forever. Thank you, God, for being our living bread. Thank you for being our living water. I pray that you would help us to meditate on these things this week and help us learn, God, what it means to bring you glory with all you've given us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.